0: Now I'd like to read our scripture, and this is found on page 627 in your pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take one home as a gift from us. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah and the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, in the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Behold, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, oh, Lord God, behold, I don't know how to speak from only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you to say, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put his hand out and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks Ben. Did a nice job reading all those names, I thought. Good work. Uh, Good morning, my name is Bill Gorman and we're really glad that you're here this morning. I serve as the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus and especially if you're newer here, uh, we're so glad that you've come and I know often that work of finding a church or checking out a new church isn't isn't an easy thing to do. And so thanks for being with us this morning. Hopefully you felt warmly welcomed here this morning already. Well, as we prepare uh, to look at this passage that Ben read for us, we're uh, beginning a new series in the book of Jeremiah this morning. Uh, I'd love to pause and pray and ask for God's help to ask him to help us hear him speaking. Uh, He is speaking to us through his word, uh, but I want to pray now that we would be able to hear him clearly in that as we study this text together. So let's do this. Father in heaven, thank you that you are speaking to us through your word. And I pray now that you would give us the quietness of heart and mind to hear what you have to say to us. I pray this in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well I want to begin this morning by asking you a question, and that is just simply who is the best person you know? Who's the most loving, selfless, loyal, mature person that you know? And and how did you how did they get that way? How did they become like that? Uh, this is the question that New York Times columnist David Brooks asked a couple of years ago as he prepared to write his book, The Road to Character. Uh, he wrote an op ed piece in the New York Times a while ago, and, and he said this He says, About once a month, I run across a person who radiates inner light. These people can be in any walk of life, they seem deeply good. They listen well. They make you feel funny and valued. You often catch them looking after other people as they do so. Their laugh is musical and their manner is infused with gratitude. And they're not thinking about what wonderful work they're doing. They're not thinking about themselves at all. And a few years ago, he says, I realized I wanted to be a bit more like those people. And what Brooks discovered as he began to study the lives of these kinds of people is that there are two kinds of virtue. There are resume virtues, and there is eulogy virtue. And he writes, eulogy virtues are the ones that get talked about at your funeral, whether you are kind, brave, honest, or faithful, whether you are capable of deep love. And I think that all of us want eulogy virtue But the path to eulogy virtue is difficult. It's always easier to start tomorrow. It involves self denial, it involves self sacrifice, it involves asking a different kind of question of the world and about our place in it. Uh, Brooks points out that commencement speakers are always telling young people to follow their passions, be true to yourself. This vision of life begins with self and ends with self, but people on the road to inner light, says Brooks, do not find their vocation by asking, What do I want from life? They ask, What is life asking of me? How can I match my intrinsic talent with one of the world's deep needs? But these kinds of lives, they aren't easy to live. In fact, they're they're vastly more difficult to live than just to live a life of seeking security and comfort and withdrawal. They often involve struggle and defeat and pain. And and at one level, nobody wants that, right? It's much easier to seek comfort and security. And and I know, right? Because, Because I feel that. I want that. I feel that draw all the time. You know, which is easier, right? Invite a neighbor over for dinner who I don't really know and it might be awkward, or just watch one more episode of Ken Burns. Or what's easier? Put uh, a little extra money aside for vacation or for retirement or to give generously of my hard-earned money. But, but who do you want to be? Because, look, we, we all gravitate toward easy and comfort because the kind of life, this kind of eulogy virtue life, is, it's too much for us. Your life is too much for you. But what we're going to discover as we study the book of Jeremiah together is that that's exactly how it's supposed to be. In fact, if, if you feel like you have your life under control, you probably aren't in touch with the world's deep need. But what if a life where you feel like everything is under control wasn't actually the best life? What if a life that feels like it's too much for us is actually the best way to live What if it's in those very moments of feeling overwhelmed and defeated that God actually has you exactly where he wants you and is most active? That's what we're going to see as we go along in this book of Jeremiah. And as we look at Jeremiah chapter 1, the beginning of the story, we're going to see that we live in a desperate world. We're going to see that God has called us to something so much more. And that he has promised to be with us. That we live in a desperate world. That God has called us to something more. And that he's promised to be with us. The first thing we see is that you live in a desperate world. And so did Jeremiah. And we're going to see much more of this in Jeremiah's life in the coming weeks as we look at his story. But we get a hint of it here right at the very beginning in the opening verses of the book. It says, The words of Jeremiah the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anath in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It also came in the the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Now, a lot of books in the Bible, kind of Old Testament books, uh, prophets, will start with verses like this. And really what they are is they're like a you are here sign on a map. You know, you've got to figure, where in the world am I in this story? These first three verses are kind of a you are here marker. And we spent the last month and a half or so walking through a series called The Story Worth Living, and we looked closely at Genesis chapters 1 through 3, but a lot has happened since like page three of the Bible, which is where we left off last week, and where we're at this morning, which in this Bible is page 623. So there's a lot that's happened in the story uh, since, since where we left off last week. And so let me catch you up a little bit on, on what's happened and how we got to Jeremiah. So uh, at the end of chapter three, Paul walked us through this of, Jeremiah, or of, of Genesis. Uh, Adam and Eve have rebelled against God. They've chosen to define right and wrong for themselves. They've abandoned the garden and been kicked out. But God is not done with humanity. In fact, we read on and in Genesis chapter 12, God calls this person Abraham and his wife Sarah. And what I'm about to say might sound a little bit strange, but just imagine what it would have been like for Abraham and Sarah. God calls them and says, I am going to use you, Abraham, and your family— which you don't have yet because you don't have any kids and also you're super old and you're probably not on a human level even able to have kids. But I'm going to use you and your family that you don't yet have and seem really unlikely to have to actually bless and save every person in the world. By the time you get to the end of the book of Genesis, God though has kept this promise. Abraham has had a son, Isaac. Isaac has had a son, Jacob. The family is growing. Jacob has 12 sons. And just when it looks like God's promise is going to fail, that the people are going to die of starvation, this little family from a famine in the land, they discover food in Egypt, and God brings them down to Egypt, and they're spared. And they spend 400 years in Egypt and they grow into a nation of people, not just a little family, a nation now, but they're in slavery. Again, the plan of God seems like it's in a moment of peril. But God raises up a leader Moses, and he uses them to lead the people out. The plan is going well, but as soon as the people get out of Egypt, they repeat the same failure that happened in the garden. They rebel against God. They whine. They complain. They want to go back to slavery. But God still manages to bring a group of people who are faithful to him into the promised land But as soon as they're in the land, once again, they forget about God. They rebel against him. Is anyone beginning to notice a pattern in this story of the Bible? But then God raises up a king, David, a man after his own heart, who unifies the people and points them back to God. But guess what? You're right. A few generations later, God's people once again turn against him. And the kingdom begins to split and crumble in war against one another. Facing enemies from within and without. This is the the desperate world, the desperate time in which Jeremiah is living and working. You may remember if you were with us over the summer, we looked at the story of Elijah, the prophet Elijah, and the wicked king Ahab. And and the story of Jeremiah takes place after that. And and for the most part, things have only gotten worse from the time of Elijah and Ahab. There have been a few bright spots along the way, but overall things have only descended. This is a, a desperate time by the end of Jeremiah's life, he will see the city of Jerusalem, the city uh, that, that he's lived in and he loves, destroyed, ransacked, people slaughtered, and the remaining survivors carried off to a foreign country, which is actually where the story of Daniel that we looked at last fall picks up in that time in Babylon. It's a time of desperation. We also live in a desperate world. Where do you feel the desperation? And it's not hard, especially this week, to see that we live in a desperate world. Incomprehensibly senseless murder of nearly 60 people, and the may mean of hundreds, literally hundreds of others in Las Vegas. You live in a desperate world. Desperate children waiting for foster care or adoption, for their, they're waiting in foster care for adoption or for their families to become stable enough for them to return. You live in a desperate world. A world where there are divisions all around us, whether those are economic or social, racial, political, just to name a few. You live in a desperate world. People struggling, battling, often losing fights against addiction to alcohol or prescription drugs or pornography. Fights against illness, fights against depression. Marriages and relationships that are struggling, you live in a desperate world. And we feel the weight of that, don't we? Cultural commentator and author, Os Guinness, once put it this way. He says, as modern people, we have too much to live with and too little to live for. Too much to live with and too little to live for. In the desperation, the weight of everything that's happening in the world to just want to wanna escape, to withdraw. Yeah, I, you, we feel that to seek comfort, to avoid difficult situations, to not get involved with difficult people, to, to build fences within which we can retreat and find security. But what we discover here in Jeremiah chapter 1 is that when you keep reading is that God has called Jeremiah, he has called you to something so much more than that. Listen again to verses 4-6. and six, four through six. Now the word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And then I, Jeremiah, said, Ah, Lord, God, behold, I do not ought to speak, for I'm only a youth. So so what is it that God is calling Jeremiah to do here? And why does he react the way he does? Well, in verse 4, we get this key phrase, the word of the Lord came to me. It's going to be a phrase that occurs over and over and over again in the book. And we don't know exactly what that experience of the word of the Lord coming to him was like for Jeremiah. Was it an audible voice that he heard? We're going to see next week that he occasionally has visions that that he sees from God. We don't know exactly how that worked, but as a prophet... These words are going to come to him. And he is. He's called in this unique role of being a prophet. Now, often when we hear that word prophet, we can think of someone kind of a fortune teller looking into a crystal ball, trying to forecast the future. And certainly Jeremiah is given a message from God about what's going to happen in the future to Jerusalem. He spends a lot of time proclaiming that. We saw that in the video uh, overviewing the book. But at the core of what a prophet does is to speak the words of Yahweh. Yahweh is the personal name for the God of the Bible, and it gets translated in our English translations as Lord, but you'll notice occasionally in an English Bible, you'll see Lord in all capital letters. That's translating God's personal name, Yahweh. Well, how does Jeremiah, how does he react to this, this call from God? Well, he says, Ah! are you kidding, God? You got the wrong guy. I, 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 I imagine he develops kind of a, a stammer at this moment. I can't speak, God. I'm, I'm just a kid. Now, God has, of course, he's heard this response before from other people. Uh, actually, Moses tried the same thing. Uh, back when God called Moses to lead his people out of Egypt, Moses says, uh, God, I can't do this. I can't be your spokesperson. I, can't I, I don't speak well. Both Moses and Jeremiah, though, I think they, they understood what was being asked of them. They were being asked to speak God's words to leaders, in Egypt in Moses' case, in Jerusalem in Jeremiah's case, to leaders who did not want to hear what God had to say. And, and that's a very risky role to take on, right? To take on very powerful leaders who have the ability to kill you. You know, imagine it would have been tough for Jeremiah to get life insurance, right? You can imagine him sort of filling out the form, right? There's the question: Are you a smoker? No. Okay. How much do you drink a week? When's this time? Uh, are you a prophet called by God to speak to a rebellious people? Oh, yes. Okay. Uninsurable. You know, this is a high-risk vocation. We're not going to take this on. It's just too risky for us as a company. Once you check that box, you're uninsurable. So the question is, that what has God called you to do? What place of deep need in the world has God called and equipped you to make a difference in? See, because no matter where you are at today, whether you are young or old, whether or not you believe in God or not this morning, I can tell you one thing with certainty. And that is that God is calling you. He's calling you. And like Jeremiah, he has known you from before you were ever born. And he's calling you, calling you first to himself. This is the call that echoes across every page of the Bible from the very opening verses to the very end of the scriptures that Christians believe that God created every single person in his image and his likeness to know him, to connect with him, to reflect him in the world. God is calling you to himself this morning. He knows you. And he wants you to know him. He loves you. And he wants you to experience the joy of loving him. You may feel that call in the ache of loneliness. Or you might feel it in a moment of overwhelming awe or joy. C.S. Lewis once said that God whispers in our pleasures and he shouts in our pains. But either way, God is calling to you. He's calling you to himself. That's our, our primary calling, to know God and to love our creator and our rescuer. But there's also a secondary calling as well. And our secondary calling is to how God has created us and called us to contribute in the world that he has made in the world that he is redeeming, making new. And this call can change and morph over time. Sometimes it, it involves receiving financial compensation for the work that you're doing. Other times it doesn't. But God is calling you to contribute somewhere and somehow in his world. You and your life is not an accident God has a purpose for you. He has a purpose for your work, whether it's paid or unpaid, whether it's exhilarating or mundane. God has called you to press in, not to draw back. He's calling us to places of courage and sacrifice rather than succumbing to comfort and self indulgence. And He's already heard all of the excuses that we're too young or too old, that we're not smart enough or we don't speak well enough. I mean, don't you think that God already knows that about you? He made you. Of course he knows that you're too old, that you're too young, that that you don't speak well. He knows every one of your weaknesses, every one of your inadequacies, and he has called you anyway. He knows your life. He knows your calling. He knows they're too much for you. And that's the way he's designed it to be. Which is why he's given us this promise. I will be with you. Look at how Jeremiah, uh, or how God responds to Jeremiah in verse 7. Notice he doesn't deny Jeremiah's youth. He doesn't, deny that Jeremiah, Jeremiah may not speak well. He just says, Jeremiah, those things don't matter. Why? Because Jeremiah, I am with you. Look at, look at verse 7 again and 8. But The Lord said to me, Jeremiah, do not say I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whoever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them. For I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. God says to Jeremiah, don't look at your weakness. Don't look at your inadequacies. Look to me and my strength, Jeremiah. I will be with you. Because again, notice he, what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, hey, Jeremiah, the people you're going to speak to aren't actually that bad. He doesn't say, Jeremiah, what you're going to face in these 40 years of this work I've called to you really isn't that terrible. No, Jeremiah's going to go through awful things in his life. Jeremiah, don't be afraid. Not because there aren't going to be a lot of scary things for you to face. There are. Don't be afraid of them. Why? Don't be afraid because I am with you. I am with you. And then God does something absolutely stunning. In verse 9, I was just amazed by this as I studied the text this week. He meets Jeremiah and empowers him at the very point at which he feels most weak. It's amazing. What does Jeremiah say he can't do? I can't speak, God. I, I, I don't speak well. I don't know how to speak. Okay, now watch this. Look at verse 9. And then the Lord put out his hand And touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. The very place where Jeremiah says he is weak, the very place where he feels overwhelmed, is the place that God touches and uses. Yes, life is a task that is too big for us. But that's how it's supposed to be. It's how God has designed it to work. It's one of those great paradoxes of life. But the place that we often feel the weakest, the most overwhelmed, is where God is usually most eager to empower us for his glory and for the good of the world around us. And I've seen this in my own life as I've uh, been on a journey over the past couple years coming to the realization that, that I'm dyslexic as a person. And and as someone who's dyslexic, the the actual task, the mechanics of writing are particularly difficult for for me. So actually getting the words out of my head onto paper in a coherent form is something that's really hard for me. And yet what do I find myself doing most weeks out of the year? Writing 3,500 word manuscripts to preach from on Sundays. God meets us in those places of weakness and inadequacy and uses them for his glory. He's with us to rescue us. But how? How do we experience God being with us? Well, one of the primary ways that God is with us is through his word, through the scriptures. You know, the theme of God speaking is all over this passage in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 2, the word of the Lord Came to me. Verse 3, the word of the Lord came to me. Verse 7, the Lord spoke to me. Verse 8, this is the Lord's declaration. Verse 9, I filled my mouth with my filled your mouth with my words. You see, God is uniquely present with us as we read, study, meditate on his word preserved for us in the scriptures. And as a pastor, I've seen this time and time again as I've, as I've sat with people in hospital rooms facing life-threatening surgery. As I've sat across the table from people whose marriages or relationships are, are disintegrating. In those moments, I can and do offer my words of, of empathy and care. But something unique happens when I say, can I read a passage of Scripture and pray for you? And as those words of Scripture fill the room, so does God's presence in a unique way, doing what my mere human words could never do. So what do God's words do in those moments? What are they doing in this moment as we hear them and read them? I think we see... Uh, at least three things right out of this passage that God's words are doing. First, we see that God is with us through his word calling us. What what God does here uniquely with Jeremiah in verse 5, choosing him, knowing him before he was formed in the womb, setting him apart, is exactly what God does for every Christian. This is how the Apostle Paul, one of the early church leaders, explains it in his letters to the church at Ephesus. He says, even before God made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure. God is calling you. He has Called you. Have you responded? Second, God is with us through His Word, comforting us. In the midst of our fears, He says through His Word, I am with you. I will rescue you. Don't be afraid. When you feel afraid or overwhelmed, turn to the Scriptures. They are the the surest place to hear God's voice of comfort. And if you're not sure where to start, if you're newer to the Bible, uh, just find any Bible anywhere and uh, just crack it open right at the middle. And uh, you'll hit somewhere right around the middle, maybe a little bit toward the front half of the middle, uh, the book of Psalms. It's the prayer book of the Bible. It's full of words of people who experience hardship and trial seeking comfort from God and receiving from him. If you don't know where to start, start in the Psalms. Third, God is with us through his word empowering us to do what we could never do on our own. There's a passage in Jeremiah chapter 12 later on in the story and Jeremiah is again feeling just completely overwhelmed by this call that God has placed on him. And in this moment God asks him an odd question. He says, "Jeremiah, if you cannot keep pace with running with men, how are you going to run with the horses?" Some of this odd question. If you can't do what what you were you trying to do in your own human strength, Jeremiah, how are you going to ask, how are you going to do what I'm asking you to do, which is even vastly beyond that? And Pastor Eugene Peterson wrote a book about Jeremiah and took this verse as a title called Running with Horses, Running with the Horses. And reflecting on this moment of God challenging Jeremiah to keep up with the horses, Eugene Peterson writes this. He says, It's easier, I know, to be neurotic. It's easier to be parasitic. It's easier to relax. Easier, but not more significant. Easier but not more fulfilling. God has called you to a life of purpose far beyond what you think you are capable of living and promised you adequate strength to fulfill your destiny. God is with you to empower you to do what he has called you to do. You can never do on your own in your own strength. You see, God is with us present in his word, ultimately in Jesus. In Jesus, God's word was made flesh. This abstract thing that we think of as words spoken or written is actually a person. Jesus is called the word. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And when we come to the table to break bread, we hear him whisper, I forgive you. I love you. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you. Do not be afraid. So as we celebrate communion this morning, let's together, as we taste and touch God's word made visible, hear his voice of forgiveness and love over us this morning.